Seems a little low. Jumping the gun there, are we? You're very friendly people, I see that. Good morning, my name is Alex. I'm the lead pastor here at Courtright, and I want to add my word of welcome to what Allison said at the beginning of the service during the announcements. If you're here for the first time, we hope that you will feel our warm welcome and that you'll stick around for coffee after the service and start to get to know us and let us get to know you better. Uh, today we continue in the new sermon series we started last Sunday on Christian leadership. And we're doing that series in parallel with our elders election for 2020. Every two years we hold an election of elders. And so we wanted to reflect on what is a Christian leader. And especially we wanted to recognize that all of us are called to leadership. There is nowhere in the New Testament a special category of Christians who are called leaders and another category who are called spectators. All of us are called to lead. Somebody after the service last Sunday gave me a definition of a leader, which, which I quite like. They said that a leader is someone who wants to help, someone who does help. And I thought, that's all of us, isn't it? All of us can step up and help. And we're called to help according to our gifts. And so you can think of this series as kind of a discernment process. It's in a way a discernment for us collectively as a congregation as we select new elders. But it's also discernment for us individually as we consider in this new year where we could serve, where we could lead. Maybe for the first time, we embrace the call to be leaders ourselves. And so Justin and Allison and I will be um, sharing this series. Next week, it's Allison, and then I'll be batting cleanup on February 2nd. And that's the end of our uh, nomination process for the elders election. So all of us, I think, have stories we could tell of leaders in our lives, right? You wouldn't be here today, I'm guessing, without leaders who have influenced you, who have inspired you, who have encouraged you. And I was reflecting on who I could speak to you about in my own life, just as an example of a leader. Uh, and I came up with someone who uh, recently moved to this part of the province. And I knew him back when I was in my mid-20s, uh, living in downtown Toronto, doing a master's at U of T, and, and really coming back to faith. I grew up in a Christian home, but I left that faith as a teenager. Um, towards the end of high school, I rejected the faith my parents had brought me up in. And then for, for five, six years, wandered trying to figure out my life on my own. And then, then God intervened in some, some pretty remarkable ways to draw me back to faith. And as part of that process, I started going to a church called Little Trinity in downtown Toronto, into their evening service. And uh, this guy, Duke Vipperman, who was the assistant priest there, um, was the preacher in the evening services. And I really loved his sermons because um, he had this gift for taking us into scripture, but also for engaging the culture. And, and I'd kind of grown up on preaching that, that seemed to not want to deal with the culture and was just one-sided. But I think good preaching always draws on both sides of that, starting on the foundation of scripture and then building into how we live that out in our lives. And I, I loved Duke's preaching, and it was one of the things that, that brought me back into church. 
Um, and, and then years later, I heard the story of how Duke had left that church, Little Trinity, and it had gone with a group of about 50 leaders to plant a new church, really to reboot a church that was on its last legs. Um, it was called Church of the Resurrection, ironically, because it was about to die. And so off, off he went with about 50 people from Little Trinity, and God did a work of resurrection in that congregation. And today they have two or three hundred people, I understand, there on Sunday mornings. Um, and so God gave Duke a vision uh, of, of church renewal, and I was able to catch up with Duke because he and his wife Deborah retired uh, to Fergus and uh, became reacquainted with him. But sadly, he passed away from cancer um, just in the last couple of weeks. So, uh, But Duke definitely was someone who had an influence on me. And uh, that, that piece of church renewal that he was so committed to, of church planting, I think is something that, that we're going to want to reflect on through this series also um, as we head into February when we'll be, first of all, dedicating this new sanctuary, which uh, for those of you who may be visiting, this is not the way it looked a year ago. This is newly renovated space, and we'll be celebrating that, but also into our annual meeting as we reflect on what is our purpose as a congregation. So this morning, we're going to look at a leader in the Bible by the name of Nehemiah. And let me introduce you to Nehemiah before we read from the book of Nehemiah. So last week, Justin gave us a glimpse of the prophets through the story of Elijah. And uh, Elijah was one in a long series of prophets who, who spoke God's truth to the people of Israel. And uh, the people of Israel were rebellious against God. They didn't want to do what God had asked them to do, and they went their own way. They wandered from God's path. And so eventually all these prophets come in a succession, and eventually the ultimate consequence comes down on the people of Israel. About a 100 years after Elijah lived, when the Assyrians come in and wipe out the northern kingdom of Israel, And then 150 years after that, Babylon wipes out Jerusalem, the southern kingdom. And so Israel as a country is done. The people are scattered. Many of them, perhaps most of them, are taken off into exile. And you can read about that in the book of Daniel. You can read about Israel's experience, God's people living in exile. Now, the story of how God's people got home from exile, from this faraway place in Babylon, um, is told in the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which originally were one book together. And it starts with uh, an emperor, a Persian emperor, Cyrus, who lets some of the Israelites go to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And a guy named Zerubbabel led that expedition. Let's why don't we say that name together? Because it's a fun name to say out loud. Zerubbabel. That was terrible. That was that was you're you're not gonna enjoy reading Old Testament uh, passages out loud if, if let's try it one more time. Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. Oh much better. You can go home and impress people with that that name. See if you can drop into a conversation this afternoon. So Zerubbabel is the first leader who takes an expedition of Israelites back to their home. And then 50 50 years later, Ezra leads another expedition, this time to focus on spiritual and cultural renewal. And then 50 years after that, we meet Nehemiah, 
So there are these successions of expeditions that, that go back to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah, when we meet him in the first chapter of the book of Nehemiah, has just heard that his people back home, the ones who were there and never left, never went into exile, who were scattered, and also the ones who returned, were in trouble, that the wall of Jerusalem was broken down and its gates had been burned with fire. And when he heard that, we read in the opening verses of Nehemiah, he sat down and wept. For days he mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then he said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. And so the first thing I want to say about Christian leadership is that leaders, as they're called by God, care. They care deeply. Secondly, they pray. And thirdly, they take risks. And we see all of that here in Nehemiah. First of all, he's honest in his grief. He gets this bad news. He, he doesn't pretend everything's okay. He doesn't resign himself to that. He doesn't say it is what it is. Rather, he is moved and he weeps. He mourns, he fasts, and he prays for days. And he's wrestling with God as he does that. He's gotten some terrible news, but that doesn't stop him from interacting with God, from having a kind of a conversation with God. I think some of us are tempted when things go wrong in our lives and we have a setback to just shut ourselves off from God. But God is the only one who can put the pieces back together when things fall apart in our lives. And Nehemiah knows that. He knows that only God can heal and restore his people. And so Nehemiah, in spite of his conflicted feelings, his doubts, his anger, his kind of paralysis that we sometimes feel in moments like that, he prays the truth about God. He says in his prayer, you are faithful, you are good, you are a covenant-keeping God. You have not abandoned us. You love us, and you will keep your promise. Really, he's praying scripture as he does that. And then along with that true picture of God, which he comes back to in spite of his wrestling with his own concerns, his doubts, he sees himself rightly too. He confesses the sins of Israel He says, we have not kept your commandments. And then he takes it on himself as well, as good leaders do. They don't blame other people. They don't transfer the blame. He says, even me and my family, we have sinned against you. If you've ever read The Institutes, which is John Calvin's big theological book, uh, it opens with, I think, one of the greatest insights in Christian theology over many centuries. And it's something very simple, but it's also totally profound. Calvin says that nearly all the wisdom we possess in our lives consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. And then he goes on to say that we can't really know ourselves at all unless we first know God, because God shows us our place in the universe. So self-awareness, self-understanding, wisdom for life, knowing who you are and being able to act on that only comes from, first of all, attending to God, from paying attention 
to God. And then Nehemiah takes a risk. Once he has told the truth about God to God and to himself, and once he has confessed, right after his prayer in verse 11, we learn something a little odd. It's this very short verse. And it says that Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king, to the king of Persia. Now, why does that matter? Well, it matters because the cupbearer had the job of drinking from the king's cup in case an enemy was trying to poison him. So the cupbearer wasn't a lowly servant. The cupbearer was actually a trusted official, an influential person in the court. He was more like a chief of staff than anything else. So Nehemiah had this great career and all kinds of amazing opportunities ahead of him. But he takes this huge risk by asking the king to let him go to Jerusalem and to rebuild it. And God answers his prayer. He goes to the king. It says he was very afraid. And the king agrees to his request and even provides resources, provides soldiers for the the journey. Now, how many of us would make a career move like that? Why would someone as comfortable as the king's cupbearer take a risk to help people that he could have ignored, right? It is what it is. People back in Jerusalem are suffering. He was thousands of miles away. Because God's love moves us. How are you growing in compassion like that? I mean, I think the pervasive... Feeling in our culture is cynicism, isn't it? Not caring. And that comes partly from being hurt. It's partly a way we protect ourselves. But it's also, in the end, it's just self-interest, really. How is God moving you to care? What vision has God given you this new year? Where do you have influence? Where could you make a difference in your life? And are you praying for opportunities to make that difference? Because as you enter into that place of being God's messenger, God's helper, you will find that the joy of the Lord comes into your life like maybe you haven't felt it in a long time. All of us are called to be leaders, without exception. And it starts with the kind of personal relationship with God that we see here in Nehemiah. He cared, he prayed, and he took a risk. So once Nehemiah makes it to Jerusalem, he needs the courage to develop the right plan for rebuilding the walls around the city and to resist all kinds of opposition that he faced. Because there were enemies of the Israelites all around. And God supplies the plan and the vision for bringing it together. And Nehemiah is able to mobilize this incredibly diverse group of people so that they can work together as a team. And we don't have time to get into that. It's a separate sermon. The teamwork that leaders bring about, but it included priests, it included goldsmiths, it even included perfume makers which always amuses me, because after a hot day of building the wall around Israel, you're going to sweat, you're going to smell a little bit. 
what you need on your team is a perfume maker, clearly. So we pick up the story in chapter 8. And I'm going to pray. This is our, our big scripture reading for the day, if you will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we've heard about the start of Nehemiah's story, and as now we, now we dive into uh, a particular moment of you bringing your people together around your word, I pray, I pray for that same togetherness here in this room this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit. Would you come among us, Holy Spirit, and be constructive? Would you rebuild us as we need to be rebuilt, individually and as a congregation? Lord, we know that's a process that takes time, but it's going to happen this morning. Would you tear down the stuff inside of us that won't last, that doesn't please you, and would you put us back together on the foundation of your Son, Jesus, we've sung that already today. We will build our lives on the foundation of your love. And so we ask for more of Jesus, and we pray that you would fill us with a love for your word and a real reverence for it. In Jesus' name, amen. So reading Nehemiah 8, verses 1 to 18. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. This is in Jerusalem. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. Now, the book of the law of Moses would have been the first five books of our Old Testament, what Jews call the Torah. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand So younger people, but those who could understand what was being read. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him, on his right, stood Mattatiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. And on his left were Padea, Mishael, Malkiah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zachariah, and Meshulam. <laughs> the church I was brought up in, if you clapped. <laughs> anyway, I'll just keep going. Um, I, appreciate, I appreciate the love, though. Let me just say that. I don't mean to be. Okay. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. (laughs) You're good. Why don't we do that? Why don't you stand up? Let's stand up. Let's let's live this out. Because that's what they did, right? For the reading of God's word, they stood up. The people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Amen. Let's try that again. Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. (laughs) There are limits, okay? Yeah. The Levites... Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Masaiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah 
instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and teacher of the law and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord, your God. Do not mourn or weep for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people saying, be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the teacher to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms, and shade trees to make temporary shelters, as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves these temporary shelters on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, in the square by the water gate and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. This is the word of the Lord. Amen, amen. Woo-hoo. So after the walls are rebuilt, and that's the point at which we have picked up the story in chapter 8, all the people gather together around God's word. And we can sum it up like this. God calls his people to come together and to listen to his word with repentance and joy. And leaders echo that call. So now, in addition to Nehemiah, Ezra enters into the story. He's identified here as the teacher of the law and as the priest. But maybe you notice that it's the people who actually tell Ezra to bring out the Bible. And there's truth to that, I've found over the years. You know, sometimes we, as it does tell us in Scripture to do this, sometimes we assume We put trust in our leaders, and that's a good thing. But sometimes we assume that the experts on a certain subject are the ones who deserve all the authority, have the right to make the decisions. But what I've discovered over years of ministry is that the people sometimes who have the least formal education, whether it's in the study of the Bible or theology, actually have the most common sense. And so there's leadership in the pews, as it were. There's leadership not only among the priests and among the formal leaders. 
So the people are eager for God's word. They're calling out for it. And they demand that Ezra read it, and they stand from daybreak till noon. So they're standing in what is increasingly hot sunshine for six hours. And for that whole time, they listen attentively. I think what we see going on in the church is the opposite in some ways. Do you find that there is less and less reading of scripture in worship services? I know when I get out there, I sometimes feel like there were only two or three verses that were read in that service. But here we see just a ton of God's word read. And I think one of the reasons we see less scripture being read in worship services is because the assumption may be that it's boring just to read scripture. But I would say that as we engage with God's word, we'll find that it's never boring. Now, of course, later in this passage, we see that God's word has to be explained as well. And that's a part of preaching. That's a part of the sermon. But are we open to the amount of scripture that we really need in our diet on Sundays throughout the week? So these people are committed to God's word and they're humbled by it. They bow down before God and his greatness. They are so moved by the reading of God's word that they weep. Are we eager for God's word like that is a question that came to mind as I was studying this passage. I think, I think our tendency is more to want God to affirm the ideas we already have. We're not open often to God changing our mind about things. I mean, you can think about social media as an example of this, right? Facebook and other social media have algorithms that are programmed to give you more and more of what you like. It's called the filter bubble. And so this reinforces what you already believe. It doesn't ever challenge you. It makes life easy for you, and it makes it easier for people to sell you things. And so predictions are made of what you, what Facebook, whoever it is, thinks you'd like to see based on what they know about you. And then they feed you more of the same. And so you're not challenged, you stay in that bubble. But the God of the Bible is not like that. If you want a God who simply meets your needs and fulfills your desires, you will not encounter the living God. When you meet the risen Jesus Christ, as I hope you have done already, he confronts you and he changes you. He doesn't leave you as you are. And so you are not going to have a personal relationship with Christ unless he can contradict you. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, there is an amazing passage about what God's word does for us. It says that all scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Correcting, rebuking, are these things we look for, we're eager for? I don't think so. And yet there's nothing more fulfilling than a relationship with a God who is real, who is beyond us, who is so much bigger and better than us. 
rather than a God we make in our own image. The irony, because what we want is something different, the irony is that nothing will make you feel more significant than to have a cause that's more important than your own needs. If the number one goal in your life, and I think this is true for a lot of us, if the number one goal in your life is to be comfortable and happy and to have money and to be with people who make you feel good, your world will be small and you will find that you have less and less significance, less and less contentment in your life. And so we're left with questions for us as a congregation, for us as individuals. Are we reading God's word? Are you doing that each day? Do you revere God's word? Would you be willing to stand for six hours? Would you say that you're ready to obey God's word? Is God's word at the center of your life, of your family, of your community? I spent some time with my parents this past week, and and I was reminded that at every dinner we have something still. I grew up like this, but my parents still have what they call family prayers. I don't know if any of you grew up with that, where after the meals concluded, uh, there is a Bible reading and a reflection on the reading and then prayers. And about 600 different prayer bulletins you have to go through with so many prayer requests from all over the world. Do I sound like I'm complaining? It's a good thing. Really, it is. It is. If you're raising kids right now, this is for you parents. Finding time to read God's word together as a family is one of the most important things you can do. And all of us are part of the family of the church. And so I would say that on Sunday morning, we read God's word together. And that's so important, but also throughout the week. Some of you are part of campus groups like InterVarsity. Others of you are beyond university age. And you're in small groups here at Courtright. And every small group, whether it's on campus or here at the church or meeting in people's homes, has as its central moment the reading of God's word. So as God's people are challenged by his words, they respond a certain way. They weep. And why do they weep? I mean, is that is that really the effect that God's words should have on us? Well, I think it's because they've only come halfway. One of the best definitions of Christian faith, of, of the gospel, the good news about Jesus that I've ever heard is this, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. You see the two parts of that? On the one hand, and I think this is the part that people would like to bypass, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Because we want to think the best about ourselves, don't we? At the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. Now, for the people in this passage we've read, they were having trouble getting past the first part of that. They were stuck in their flaws. And so it takes Nehemiah, it takes Ezra, it takes their leaders, the priests, to remind them 
that God is with them, that he is merciful, that he has provided what they need. And that's when they receive the joy of the Lord. And so you can see the passage up on the screen that they're reminded not to mourn or weep continually. They're reminded of the holiness of the day. And Nehemiah goes on. In the next slide, we see that he encourages the people to go and enjoy choice food and have sweet drinks. Now, last week we saw how Elijah had a nap and a snack. And that was really central to Elijah being revived and being open to God's voice, being able to hear it. And here, these people who have wept, have been moved by God, are now told that they should eat and drink, and also that they should share the abundance of what they have with others. And so they go on to live that out. And in God's word, they find instructions for what's called the Festival of Tabernacles. Sukkot is the Hebrew name for it. The Jews have three big festivals, and the Festival of Tabernacles is one of those three. And through that festival, Jewish people then and today still remember and reenact their years wandering in the wilderness, years before they entered the promised land. And they do that by living in tents for a week. And it's a way of recommitting themselves to dependence on God, a reminder that we're always in need of God, even if we've just rebuilt the walls of the city of Jerusalem and feel secure as a result, or if we've just renovated our sanctuary and are feeling pretty good about this space in our church. We have to spend a week in tents sometimes to get back to a reliance on God. The Israelites disobeyed the Lord. They ignored his word and they ended up in exile. You know, we have that same problem. And, And into that predicament of not being able to obey God's word and to please him comes Jesus Christ. And in John chapter one, we read that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And the Greek word behind that translation made his dwelling among us literally means that he tabernacled among us. And so you have this image of, of God in Jesus Christ coming down from the five star hotel that is heaven, where he lived with the father and the Holy Spirit in this perfect harmony. And he comes into Bethlehem, Nazareth. He comes to live in a tent. He comes to be a backpacker. He comes to go on a canoe trip. And he's come so far from that glory, and yet he is full of glory. And we see God's grace and truth in him. And he has made himself weak to the point of not just giving up his privilege, but of even giving up his life for us at the cross. Jesus comes as the final expression of God's love, his grace and his truth to save us from our sin, from our self-centeredness, to open the way for us to return from spiritual exile, every one of us, to a great homecoming to God the Father. And the Holy Spirit draws us back to repentance again and again. Out of the high towers we make and build for ourselves, back into the tents and tabernacles of depending on God. At a time when God's people here in Jerusalem 
could have been proud about all they'd accomplished, they listen to God's word together instead. They weep, they repent, they celebrate with joy, with good food and drink. They share what they have with those in need, and they're sent out to proclaim and spread God's word. And we read about that in verse 15. And and I want to stop at this point and kind of reflect on this, because there's some kind of a connection here between this tabernacling, this festival of tabernacles, and being vulnerable, living in a tent, getting out from your high tower, um, the place of comfort and security. And this proclaiming God's word and spreading it throughout their towns. I mean, when we get comfortable, we get lazy often, I think, right? We tend to not leave our routines. But when we live in a tent, those routines, that comfort is disrupted. So here's my question for you. As we prepare to dedicate our renovated sanctuary this beautiful space, which cost us a fair bit of money and which we're probably feeling pretty good about. I know I am. What would a festival of tabernacles look like for Courtright? How can we get out of our own comfort zones? One thing I thought of was, what if once a month we worshipped in the gym? I know Justin and Dennis are really happy with that suggestion already. But... For those of you who were here at that point, we were worshiping the jinn. It was, it was cozy. Thank you, Bruce. Yeah. What else? How do we build community that disrupts our our comfort? Alpha. That's coming from Karina. That's expected. Do you know? Do you know about? <laughs> Do you, know about, do you know about the Alpha course? I'm trusting that... How many people here have taken an Alpha course? A lot of you. If you haven't, I totally recommend it. I hear... Uh, Kira, did you say there was an Alpha course happening on campus? Is that starting sometime soon? This Tuesday. Oh, oh, nice. We're, we're, there's more coming, actually. What else? Any other ideas for how we could... Party and invite the neighbors. Okay, because because they're they're traveling, right? They're going out throughout towns, so they're getting outside of the place where they were all gathered that day. And presumably there were a lot of neighbors they were interacting with. So I, I think there's something here that we can maybe come back to throughout this year. Um, maybe this is the year of tabernacles in a way at court right thinking about now that we've got the place where we can gather around God's word and it's got new carpet and there are new chairs coming how can we introduce into our regular habit as a congregation a way of not getting too comfortable in those understand they're very plush padded chairs that are coming how can we not sink into them too deeply So I'm just going to put that out there and and we'll we'll come back to it. But what I want to do right now is to invite Allison and some students up, because I think, you know, when when we talk about 
elders' elections. You hear the word elder, you think of older people sometimes. I know people do. But I have found students to be the most inspiring leaders over the years that I've ever met. And so we have a chance today to hear from some of our student leaders as Allison interviews them. So I'm delighted to introduce uh, for you Becca, Kira, and Alyssa. They're all uh, involved on campus as student leaders and also part of our uh, congregation and community here at Courtright. And uh, we wanted to share with you a little bit about Jesus Week, which is happening this next week on campus. Kira and I were having coffee this week, and she was telling me some of what was happening, and it was so exciting that I felt like you all need to hear this. Um, partly so that we can be excited with our student leaders, but also as an invitation to pray. I want to invite us as a congregation to really be keeping these things in mind this week and to um, hold our student leaders and also the students at the University of Guelph in prayer this week. So they are all going to be part of something called Jesus Week. Jesus Week is a collaborative effort between many campus groups um, for this coming week, Monday to Thursday, uh, to be able to sort of uh, come together. Well, I'm going to stop talking. They're going to tell you much better. So I'm going to invite Becca right now. Um, Becca, can you tell us a little bit of an overview about what Jesus Week is? Um, So there's a lot of different Christian groups on campus, and Jesus Week is just a chance for us to all come together and kind of show the student body that we are one group, um, one community together, because there's Power to Change, University, Guelph Campus Ministry, um, Athletes in Action. There's so many of us, and so it's a chance for us to come together, but not promote our own groups, but we're actually promoting, um, well, Jesus, but um, Alpha starts this week and so every individual event that we plan it's not like come to power change or come to university it's come to alpha which is starting that week um and then it finishes so we have our different events and it's finishing with a big worship night together with all the groups on thursday nights so yeah that's great thanks so this beautiful picture of all of these campus groups coming together yeah not just to get more people in their group but to say let's be in this together and invite people have a common purpose inviting people to alpha that's awesome um, Kira, can you share a little bit more? So uh, Becca was saying a number of the different campus groups are going to be doing uh, different outreach events during the week, and at those events, all inviting students out to Alpha. So Kira is part of helping to organize the event that InterVarsity is going to be hosting on campus. So can you tell us a little bit more about that outreach event, Kira? Yeah, so on Tuesday, InterVarsity is going to be running um, a visual art display in the University Center at the University of Guelph. Um, so we're going to be displaying four different images based on the Book of Revelations and inviting people to ask questions, look at the pictures, and hopefully starting some conversations about faith and being able to invite them out to Alpha. That's great. And I understand. So that's kind of a follow-up event. You actually did that in the fall as well. Um, do you have any quick comments on like how that went in the fall or what that was like that made you want to try this again? Yeah, so we did one in the fall with two of the images, and we were able to start some really awesome conversations. So we're looking forward to see what God has in store for this time. That's great. Thanks, Kira. And Alyssa, can you share with us a little bit more about the vision for Alpha on campus and what that's going to look like? Yeah, so I saw a lot of you know what Alpha is and have done an Alpha course before, but on campus we're going to have a lot of the Christian groups working together to run the course through the semester. And the goal is to kind of have like an introductory course, like who Jesus is, so it'll be really good for people who are seeking or who are like new to their faith. 
And I understand you actually have the athletic center on campus or part of that space. There's going to be dinner in there for, yeah, can you say a little bit more about the sort of capacity that's there for... Yeah, so that's like one of our big pulls is that there's going to be free dinner every week. Um, but it's going to be in the football pavilion, like the uh, the alumni pavilion. So it's a really cool space that we don't really use very often. But it's going to be big, so there's room for a lot of people. That's great. Room for lots of people. So let's be praying. Would you join with us this week uh, to be praying that that space would be filled, um, that it would be filled with, and not just for the sake of having it filled, but that it would be filled with people um, that God is already at work in their lives and drawing them to himself uh, and that they would encounter him in significant ways in that opportunity. Um, so would you pray with me right now? And then again, I just invite you to be um, keeping these leaders and others in mind uh, and praying for the campus this week. Let's pray. God, we know that you are far more concerned with people uh, coming to know you and knowing the truth of who you are and who they are than we are. And so we thank you for the good work that you are already doing, drawing people to yourself. And we pray for that good work, in particular at the University of Guelph this week. God, we pray that you would um, be putting aside any barriers that would uh, hinder students from choosing to come and learn more about who you are. Pray that you would pave the way, that you would sort of make um, inroads, that you would help them to have the courage that it would take uh, to go do that. Pray for our student leaders in those conversations this week. Pray for um, boldness and most of all an assurance of uh, your love for them so that they are rooted in knowing your love as they share and talk with other students on campus. And we do ask that many would come and be able to learn more about who you are in that place. Thank you for the people that are providing it, um, that are working to offer that, and we pray your blessing. And God, we do ask that you would do far more than we can even ask or imagine uh, on the campus and in the lives of these students this week. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.